Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I'm going to be revisiting a story that I did a segment on last month that involved the Calhoun County Poor Farm. And this episode, I'm going to be exploring other poor farms in Southwest Michigan. But more importantly, I'm going to be looking at the State Convention of Superintendents of the Poor, which oversaw the poor farms in 24 counties in 1878. So this will be kind of an interesting look at how the poor were taken care of and addressed in counties around Michigan in the late 1800s, which is when this article was written. So the article that I found that gave a lot of details was called Poor Superintendents. That was the headline. And it was published in the Hillsdale Standard of January 22nd, 1878. But it was originally an article that was run in the Kalamazoo Telegraph. So my assumption is it ran maybe a week or two before it was carried in the Hillsdale Standard. So I don't have an exact date of the article when it was published, other than it was published in the Kalamazoo Telegraph sometime in January of 1878. And it describes the state convention of superintendents of the poor that was held in Grand Rapids on January 8th, 1878. And it's quite fascinating because it kind of gives a whole insight into that whole history of the poor farms, the superintendents, the whole management of them, and some of the different viewpoints that you had from the different superintendents and the people representing the individual counties. And some of these might be shocking to you because there was a lot of um, people just stating their minds, and this was going into the article as well, and there was really no censorship of ideas. They just... uh, carried and published and relayed anybody's comments or suggestions or opinions in these old newspapers, whether they were uh, a universally held idea or not. And so I'm going to read you through some of this history of this article of the convention. And then I have a few other stories that I have found of some of the tidbits of information about the poor farms in other counties. But this was covering the whole state. And it says, The superintendents of the county poor of 24 counties, including Kalamazoo, met at Grand Rapids Tuesday evening. The first subject discussed was paupers, opened by Chamberlain of Berrien County, who said that the popular way of disposing of paupers was to entertain them for a day or two and then pass them on, increasing pauperism. Mr. Green of Eaton County believed that as long as people could get aid by asking for it, they would never work. He would educate the children of paupers in state institutions and thus prevent the spread of pauperism. Mrs. de Arkhambal thought it better to send unfortunate girls to the poorhouse than to the house of correction. In the poorhouse, they might be made to amount to something if properly cared for. She praised the state school at Coldwater. Hall of Calhoun said that the state institution was now full 
and that the county house of Calhoun County contained some 30 paupers who, if the school was not full, were of a suitable age to attend it. S.L. Fuller of Grand Rapids was surprised to learn that there was a poorhouse in the state that contained 30 children. Why not go out and get them a home? Giving them plenty to eat was not what was wanted, but they wanted homes. M.V. Aldrich of Kent County stated that when he first entered the service as superintendent of the poor of that county, there was a number of children on the poor farm. He went around personally and procured homes for all the children, and they are all doing well. He thought that too much was being done for the old paupers. All of them would sooner beg than work. When he took charge of the poor farm, there were over 70 paupers in the county house, and now the number did not average over 40. He saw but one way to get rid of tramps, and that was to kill them outright. That was pretty shocking <laughs> when I read that. It was like, did he was he saying this uh, metaphorically or just referring to just discharging them and sending them on their way? I don't think he was actually murdering people, but that's what he said. He said, you know, he saw but one way to get rid of tramps, and that was to kill them outright. So that was his opinion. Uh, in the city of Grand Rapids, there were over 150 families supported by the city, and most of them had children. All were the offspring of those who will not work, but will steal. The amount expended for the poor in Kent County last year was more than $50,000, of which amounts all but 10000 was expended for temporary aid. Bishop Gillespie spoke of holding a Christmas service at the Calhoun County Poorhouse, where he noticed, among others, there was a deaf and dumb child of eight years of age. He thought she should be sent to the asylum at Flint, but as the law did not permit of children being sent to that institution until they were 10 years of age, she must remain at the county house for two years. In reply to Mr. Fuller's remarks, he said that among the inmates in this same house are nine colored children, the offspring of one pauper, and said that it was impossible to find homes for them. Chamberlain of Berrien said the statistics of last year showed that there were over 600 children under 16 years of age in the poorhouses in this state. More trouble was experienced in finding places for boys than girls. We continue on the report condensed from the Detroit Free Press on Wednesday morning after prayer came the calling of counties and reports thereon by delegates of the general management of the poor in their respective counties. The following counties are reported. And here's where they get into the statistics of the individual counties. Allegan, it has a farm of 160 acres, a poorhouse, insane asylum, and children's home. 50 paupers in the poorhouse, 17 in the insane asylum, and 12 children in children's homes. In Barry County, it was a farm of 100 acres, 15 to 20 paupers in the poorhouse, farm good but house poor, no insane or children in the house. In Bay County, there was a farm of 120 acres, 40 good land and 80 poor land, good county house and insane asylum, 13 inmates in the pauper department, and 11 idiots and insane in a sane asylum. No children in the poorhouse. Berrien County. One person in 35 in this county receives aid. Average number of the poorhouse is 35. 22 insane are supported from this county at Kalamazoo. At 
Flint, five blind, and two deaf and dumb are supported by this county. The poor farm consists of 160 acres. The annual expense of supporting the poor in Berrien County is $15,000. There are 12 children under the age of 12 years at present in the poorhouse. So Berrien County apparently funded some of their residents that needed to go to Flint for the insane asylum there i suppose the deaf and dumb is what they're writing here um and remember these are the terms that they used back in that day it's not something that i'm suggesting use in present day i'm just reading the historical account of what what they had written here so apparently they sent their blind and deaf people to flint and supported them because they were from their county and they sent their insane to the kalamazoo County Insane Asylum, which was a pretty big institution in that time period. Remember, this article is 1878. And it goes on, talks about the Calhoun County poorhouse. There are 22 children in the poorhouse, almost all of whom are colored. It is found almost impossible to find the homes for them. Have 140 acres of good productive land, large county house, and from 90 to 110 inmates. Children are all sent to a district school which is near the county house. Clinton County has 76 acres on the farm. The number of paupers is from 25 to 30, all grown people. Farm produces enough to support the inmates, which is a very important thing to note. They asked or encouraged the people staying there to work the farm, which helps supply some of the food. Not in every case did they produce enough to support the farm, But apparently in this county, it was enough to support the food supply of the poorhouse there. But I'll get more into that in a moment when I carry some other stories from Berrien County, which I found quite interesting. Eaton County, 160 acres, 80 improved. Farmhouse is of brick two-story and is capable of holding 75 inmates. Also have a separate building for the vicious and insane also have a separate building for those who work. The number of inmates on the farm are now 50. At Kalamazoo, the county supports 13 inmates. The expense for supporting the poor the past year in the county house, and that has been $5,200. But one child in the county house, and that one is too young to get a home as of yet. Ingham County has a farm of 200 acres with poor buildings. Separate buildings are on the farm for female and male paupers. Whole number paupers, 56. Number paupers under 16. Years of age, 11. Insane, 3. Idiots, 3. Deaths, 6. Births, 2. Number of persons outside the poorhouse temporarily relieved, 1,032. Amount expended for support. Of Poor Farm and Farm, $3,334.42. Kalamazoo County has a farm of 160 acres. Average number kept in the poorhouse is 48. Several children, most of whom are idiotic. School was held last year for three months. 700 received temporary relief. A home for the friendliness and home for children is supported at Kalamazoo by the by the benevolent ladies of that place. Kent County has a farm of 104 acres, 80 of which are improved. The average number supported on the farm is 42. 
most of whom are idiotic or insane paupers. The amount expended annually for support of county poor is about $10,000. The total amount expended throughout the county for the support of the idiotic, insane, and poor is nearly $50,000. 37 insane are now supported at Kalamazoo. At present, there are no children in the county house. The poor house is not what it should be. Being very old, it is proposed to erect a brick building in the spring for idiotic and insane. Lenawa County, a good county house heated by steam and built at the expense of $30,000. The expense for supporting the poor in this county has been about $16,000 for the past year. And then there's mentions of Manistee County, which has a brick building, good ground, an orchard, and flower beds. Macosta has a poor farm of 80 acres, and both land and buildings are poor. Montcalm County has a poor house of 120 acres, 23 inmates in poor houses, eight which are insane or idiotic. Midland has a farm of 120 acres. The average number supported is 10. Marquette has a poor farm of 12 acres. An average number supported at the house is 20. The expense for support of paupers in this county has been about 26000 a year, of which about 20000 has been expended for temporary relief. Oceana County has a good farm. The average number of paupers supported, 14 number who have received temporary relief, 76. Ottawa County, a poor farm of 200 acres, 125 of which are improved. Average number of inmates, 25. A few children are in the poor house at the present time. The expense of the poor farm last year was a little over $3,000, amount for temporary relief spent, 3000 and 5000 between those numbers. And Saginaw, total expense for support of poor in this county for the past year has been $34,000. 27 insane are in the insane asylum at Kalamazoo. From this county, poor farm consists of 120 acres. Average number of inmates in poor house is 34. Building is two-story, 80 by 40 feet. A new building will soon be built. Van Buren County, farm consists of 171 acres with fair buildings. Expense of this poor house the past year was $4,000. Temporary relief amounted to $3,000. Total expense for the poor in the county was $14,000. Washtenaw County has a good farm, fair buildings. 612 persons were received and supported from the county, 44 of which are insane. At the present date, 150 persons are in the county poorhouse and 16 at the insane asylum at Kalamazoo. The expense for support of poor the past year $18,200. Wayne County has a farm of 280 acres. The number of inmates at the present time is 546. Last year, 3,706 were relieved. Expense of the asylum and almshouse for the past year was $30,084.68. Have school at the poor farm every day. And the last one here is Wexford County, which has a farm of 100 acres, 35 of which are improved. A poor house was built some three years ago since at a cost of $1,500. At present time, there are no poor in the house. Have rented poor farm, and when any paupers are brought in, they pay the family who rented the building $1.50 per week for all under 12 years of age and $2.50 per week for all over that age. 
temporary relief has been granted to 108 persons the year past. So in the meeting, they had some references where there were speakers speaking on the Old Testament and things like that. And then they mentioned that they talk about the insane asylum in Kalamazoo and said that it was not an asylum, but a hospital. And when a person was found incurable, they were sent back from the asylum and put in jails and poorhouses. And then there was some debate that they, the place for incurable insane persons should be in the asylum and not in poorhouses. And so there was this debate back and forth because the state insane asylum was in Kalamazoo and they would send them there. But the asylum, of course, would probably get full at times and they'd say, well, this person really should just go back to the poorhouse. And then the poorhouse is saying, well, we're not equipped to handle this person. And so there was a bit of that going back and forth when there was an article that I did in a prior episode you can listen to on the Calhoun County Poor Farm. There is a few people that they described in there that would probably fit that category. Um, and it must have been quite a challenge for people at that time to try to take care of these uh, folks that were in that condition. So that's the end of that article of what I'm going to carry here. Uh, it is quite revealing, I think, of what the condition of the system for taking care of people during that era. That was, of course, 1878. So there was an article that I found that was published in the Benton Harbor Weekly Palladium in December of 1898. And it was on the poor farm. And there was a complaint filed by somebody on the poor farm to the superintendent in Berrien Springs. And the superintendent, or called the keeper of the poor farm, his name was Mr. Light. And there was a somebody that went there and they complained about it. And so I'm just going to read you the little bit of the story here. And it kind of gives some insight into um, some of the challenges that these poor farms had with some of the people that would go there that were destitute. And then there were certainly some that were just there to create trouble. So I'll read this here. The people of this county who have known the keeper of the poor farm, Mr. Light, for years and have had full confidence in his ability, honesty, and uniform kindness, public wards placed in his keeping, have not credited the stories lately set afloat to his discredit. And apparently there was a newspaper called Berrien Springs Era, which said that last night the Nile Star published a complaint about the treatment of inmates at the county poorhouse. The complainant is one Burnett, an elderly man at Niles who was sent to the county farm because he had no place to live. Mr. Light, the keeper, asked the man to help husk corn a little, and then the trouble began. It was an insult not to be born, and Burnett forthwith absconded. And so I guess Burnett went to the newspaper and said, oh, they're making me work hard and blah, blah, blah. And the newspaper carried the story about mistreatment. So the era, the newspaper, doesn't know Burnett, but men who say his regular occupation is standing around corners... How well he has been fed in times past is not known at this office, but the complaints of the grub he received at Mr. Light's hotel and says bread, potatoes, and water was a considerable part of the rations. So basically, he was complaining about the food. He was complaining about having to be asked to work and that this man's occupation was standing around on corners begging. 
So that's kind of interesting because it does hail to some of the things that we see today with people standing around corners. Um, And I've had a few experiences myself with them where I've offered them work back in Atlanta. I ran a company that we did occasionally hire day laborers, and I've approached some of those guys that were standing on the corner and say, look, we'll pay you for a full day's wages and put some money in your pocket at the end of the day. We need some help cleaning up a property or doing some, you know, it was simple labor, you know, picking up um, wood and putting it into a dumpster and that sort of thing. And couldn't get those guys to even consider it. They just wanted a handout. And um, I've also in the past stopped by some of those guys on street corners that are holding signs and say, look, you know, here's some, uh, I'll take you to breakfast or something like that and buy you lunch. Oh, no, 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 I just want money. And it was like, yeah. So I don't know how many of you out there have encountered that sort of thing over the years, but it's interesting to note that similar types of things were happening way back in 1898. And it does kind of offer a bit of insight into the character of man and that there are legitimately people that are struggling and poor and others that are there to just get a free handout. And I think that has been a dynamic that we've all struggled with in charities over the years. Um, but on the reverse side, I um, one time back in Atlanta when I lived there, we did a Christmas project every year for three years, and that was to go to the post office because there would be a story in the newspaper saying, oh, they get all of these Santa letters in the newspaper or that go to the post office and they don't know what to do. And so we, and they have programs where if you call the post office, they'll give you some of the Santa letters as long as you agree to fulfill or do your best efforts to fulfill the Santa letters for those kids. And they verified that these were legitimate cases. They would go to a social agency so to make sure that it wasn't somebody who was just writing in for free stuff. And so they'd give us these letters. So every year uh, for three years, we went and got Santa letters, and then we would spend two to three weeks prior to Christmas um, packaging up everything we could, and we'd bring them to these families um, and drop them off. You know, we'd ring the doorbell on Christmas Eve. And so that was, you know, we put on our Santa hats and we'd go around. And they were in the poor areas of Atlanta. And my experience from that taught me a lot about what you see and what you hear about the charitable end of things and the needy. And we did, over three years, we brought gifts to a total of, I'm guessing, about 10 families you know, we did between three to four a year. I think the last year we only did two families. The first two years we got really aggressive and it was really took a lot of effort to do like five or six because, you know, the lists were long and the kids, there were more kids. Sometimes there were two or three kids that being referred to in the same letter. So you're fulfilling um, the wishes of all these kids. So anyways, we, we did these fulfillments and we bring the, we get the addresses and we ring the doorbell. And of those 10 cases roughly, eight of them, we didn't see the kids. The mothers opened the doors and they say, oh, you're the Santa people. Okay, we'll just put the stuff there on the couch, you know, and then we walk in, put stuff down and it was just, we'd leave. And it was just really strange. You know, you're expecting to see some gratitude, but it was none. It was just like an expected thing. And then there were two cases where 
they were so grateful that it made it all worth it. You know, they were just like one of them. The lady was the the only one out of all 10 that was not living in public housing was one woman who owned a house and she had just lost her job. And um, she was so grateful for us showing up and helping her out with Christmas. And she was just going on for 15 minutes while we were there, just about how wonderful we were and how, and it just made it all worth it, you know? And the little kids came out, they saw the gifts, they were happy. I mean, one of the, this was 1990s, so one of the girls had written in a letter that she really wanted a typewriter because she was learning to, wanting to write stories. So we found an old typewriter. We actually took it apart, cleaned it up, made it functional. It was a great typewriter when we were done. And uh, we gave it to her, and she was just delighted. you know. And so that was what made it all worth it. And I can understand looking at the charity to the poor that there are those out there that game the system. And when they do that, I think it turns people off from contributing to charities and uh, in times of... Um, the holidays and that sort of thing. Or you get into a situation where you're just blindly giving and then you have these organizations that just perpetuate this kind of behavior. But in the mix, there's always somebody out there that genuinely needs help. And that's what I learned from that experience. And it wasn't always uh, fulfilling for you as the giver to go and do this. And, and sometimes it felt like, wow, we just put all that effort in and we just felt like we got scammed and it was just somebody just gaming the system. But then there was times when it was just absolutely wonderful. But I can understand how people get jaded with charitable giving because of that experience when they run into somebody that they suspect is really just taking advantage of a system that's in place to help people. So anyways, I thought I would share that personal account. That was something I thought of when I was reading about this period of time in the late 1800s and saw the similarities to today. A lot to learn from history, and it's very interesting to see that they were struggling with the same type of giving and charity back even in um, the 1800s that we kind of come across today. And I don't know, let me know your thoughts about it. Um, have you had similar experiences with this sort of thing do you uh, find this kind of information fascinating? I, I find learning about some of the history of how the poor were taken care of and treated or supported to try to become more independent fascinating and how the different approaches from the past differ from what we do today. I think that there was a genuine effort from these poor farms to try to help people get out there in the world to find placement for children, to get them into families where they could be uh, supported and grow up and have a good life. And then there were, uh, of course, the ones that, the people that were in physical or mental conditions where they could not support themselves. And there was a genuine caring factor there that they felt like they needed to do something for them. And there's also, of course, a few shocking uh, revelations that were in some of the articles I read earlier. So that is gonna conclude today's episode on tales of southwest michigan's past i hope i didn't diverge too much from the original subject matter for you but it is an interesting take on how people were cared for it's an interesting look at charity back in 150 years ago and comparing it with how we do things today and i don't know that there's any perfect system out there but um Love to know your thoughts on it. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. Send me a message. Let me know your thoughts on this episode. And um, I'll post the episode, obviously, on social media and things like that. And you can certainly 
make your comments there as well. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore yet another fascinating chapter of Southwest Michigan history. Thank you for listening.